0: Good morning, morning. and welcome to Grace Bible Church. Pastor Steve is on vacation, uh, and uh, it's it's a blessing and an honor to come and to preach God's Word. If you would, turn with me to Acts chapter 13, verse 22, and 1 Samuel chapter 8. Our text is Acts 13:22. And the title of the sermon today is David, a man after God's own heart. Starting at verse 22. And when he had removed him, he raised up for them David as king, to whom also he gave testimony and said, I have found David, the son of Jesse, a man after my own heart, who will do all my will. Let us pray. Father in heaven, I pray you use the truth of your word, your holy word, to change hearts here today. Because only God can change hearts. And we pray for your presence, Lord. We pray that you would be here today. Speak to our hearts, saved and lost. And draw us closer to yourself. And all the people said, Amen. David was the second king of Israel. And without a doubt, he was the greatest king that nation ever had. Under his leadership and God's sovereignty, Israel became a leading world power. And not only was David a great king, he was one of the mightiest warriors. 1 Samuel 18, 7 says, Saul has slain his thousands and David his ten thousands. David wrote many of the Psalms and like many of the men and people up here, was a gifted musician. Whenever Saul would go into one of his savage fits, The only thing that would calm his spirit was when David came and softly played his harp. David is one of the heroes of the faith in Hebrews 11. He expanded the boundaries of Israel from 6,000 to 60,000 square miles. He set up trade routes that brought wealth into Israel like never before. He was so remarkable That one of the messianic titles of Jesus Christ is the Son of David in Matthew 1 1. He was so powerful that 62 chapters in the Old Testament are devoted to his biography. Some say 66. He has 59 references in the New Testament. By far more than any other biblical character. He was so prominent. That Bethlehem is also called. The city of David. In Luke 2.11. During his lifetime. He received great promises. And remarkable blessings from the hand of God. But the greatest of all. Was that David was the only one, and I do mean the only one, to be called a man after God's own heart. What an honor. Notice that the verse doesn't say, I have found David a great king. It could have said that. It doesn't say, I have found David a great poet. He wrote many of the Psalms. It doesn't say, I have found David a great warrior. And that he was. I have found David. A man after my own heart. That's amazing. This was not David's own testimony. This was the testimony of God. Now this is a perplexing statement. Why? Because David's actions weren't always godly. And in case you are unfamiliar with David's life, there were some sordid actions. There were some ungodly things that he did. And I'm going to give you a brief overview. In 1 Chronicles 22, David wanted to build a temple for God. And God said, no. Not you, your son. Because David was a warrior who had shed much blood. In 2 Samuel 11... David committed adultery with a woman named Bersheba. And Bersheba became pregnant. And David tried to resolve this problem. He ordered her husband Uriah put into the front of the battle where he was killed. David committed lust, adultery, and murder. In 2 Samuel 11, no, 2 Samuel 3, David had multiple wives, at least eight that I can count, and many concubines, and 21 children. He was an absentee, neglected father who abdicated his responsibility. But that's another message, maybe for Father's Day. And his family was plagued with strife and tragedy. In 2 Samuel 24, David, in the latter years of his life, David pridefully counted his army contrary to God's command, causing 70,000 of his own people to die due to a plague. Wow. 70,000. That's about the size of Redwood City. And What do I get from this? Why do I mention that in the latter years of his life? I wish I could announce to you that the older we get in Christ, that we automatically mature and make godly decisions. That the longer we walk with the Lord, the more we are guaranteed immunity from sin. But the lesson here is, Age does not guarantee maturity or freedom from sin. Can you say amen? Amen. How many of us know good friends, good people that came to know Christ at the same time we did, have been Christians 10, 20, 30 years, and now they rarely come to church? And they've been Christians a long time. We all do. Age does not guarantee maturity or freedom from sin. And sin is like a crouching tiger waiting to jump on you. And David paid a terrible price for his actions and consequences. And I guess the question becomes, how could God possibly commend a man with this kind of background? Yes, David was a man with clay feet, a man with character flaws. But in the big picture... David sought to be righteous and his heart's desire was to do the will of God. This is the kind of people that God is looking for. God does not expect perfection as we can clearly see from the life of David. After everything that David had done wrong, God could still say, That David was a man after my own heart, a man who will do all my will. That blows me away. Not only was David a great king, not only was David a great poet, not only was David a great shepherd, not only was David a great warrior, he was also the great penitent. He wrote Psalm 51. And his spirit-filled prayer reveals why David is called a man after God's own heart. Psalm 51 reveals the heart of a sinful man who sees his sin clearly and repents. And in Psalm 139, David cries out, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me. And know my thoughts. And see if there be any wicked way in me. Any wicked way in me. And lead me in the way everlasting. David was forgiven. Because he was broken and contrite. And as we begin our journey in 2015. The question is. Do you want to be a man or a woman after God's own heart? How will we live in this new year? What is your heart's desire? To be a man or a woman after God's own heart? To follow after God? This morning I want to preach on the subject. David, a man after God's own heart. And I chose this subject carefully, because I thought, for 2015, what do I want God to speak to me about? What can God share with me and tell me that can give me focus this year? And I, I prayed, and this is what God laid on my heart, being a church, being a body that wants to do all God's will. That wants to follow after God. 1 Samuel chapter 8. If you would turn with me. And we're going to spend the rest of our time mostly in 1 Samuel chapter. These these chapters. 1 Samuel chapter 8. I'm just going to read verses 1 through 5. Now it came to pass when Samuel was old. That he made his sons judges over Israel. The name of the firstborn was Joel and the name of his second Abijah. They were judges in Beersheba. But his sons did not walk in his ways. They turned aside after dishonest gain, took bribes and perverted justice. Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, Look, you are old and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now make us a king to judge us Like all the nations. Let me give you a little background here. David is a young teenager, a nobody, living in a tiny village in Bethlehem. But David grew up during a time of crisis. One author wrote, The people were on a long drift from God. Sounds familiar. Like today, the church today in America is on a long drift from God. And that was the world that David was born into. Eli, the high priest, and his wicked sons were gone. Samuel, the last of the judges, was old. And Samuel appointed his two sons, Joel and Abijah, to judge Israel. And what a mistake that turned out to be. So the people were disillusioned. And verse 5 says that they wanted a king like all the nations. So they chose Saul. Saul was tall, dark, and handsome. And that is how people choose kings today. And sometimes even presidents. They want someone who looks good. And Saul was the people's choice. And although Saul was a tall man. He was a giant among men. He was a spiritual pygmy. He had a good start. But a terrible finish. And I'm going to get to that in a minute. The first point. If you have your outline. The reproof of disobedience. Turn to chapter 13 now. Chapter 13 verses 8 through 14. Then he, that's Saul, waited seven days according to the time set by Samuel. But Samuel did not come to Gilgal and the people were scattered from him. So Saul said, bring a burnt offering and peace offerings here to me. And he offered the burnt offering. Now it happened as soon as he had finished presenting the burnt offering that Samuel came. And Saul went out to meet him that he might greet him. And Samuel said, What have you done? Saul said, When I saw that the people were scattered from me and, and that you did not come within the days appointed and that the Philistines gathered together at Mishmash... Then I said, The Philistines will now come down on me at Gilgal, and I have not made supplication to the Lord. Therefore I felt compelled and offered a burnt offering. And Samuel said to Saul, You have done foolishly. You have not kept the commandment of the Lord your God, which he commanded you. For now the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. But now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought for himself a man after his own heart, And the Lord has commanded him to be the commander over his people because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. Saul was not willing to wait for the the prophet Samuel. And he thought he had three good reasons to offer up that burnt offering. One, the people were scattering. His army was scattering. Two, the Philistines were coming. And three, the prophet Samuel was late. So he presumed, because he was the king that he could offer a burnt offering. But only a priest from the tribe of Levi could offer a burnt offering. And 1 Samuel 10, 8 tells us that Samuel told him, wait seven days, I will be there. But he didn't do that. So he was reproved by Samuel. It says, you have done foolishly. You have not kept the commandment of the Lord. You have not kept what the Lord commands you. Why was the kingdom taken from Saul? Because of his disobedience. Saul disobeyed the Lord's command. And his disobedience caused caused a serious crisis. Strict obedience is better than good intentions. This is not complicated, brothers and sisters. When you hear a clear command, don't analyze it. Don't question it. Just obey it. When God says, do not marry an unbeliever, no amount of love, no amount of hope will make that marriage any more acceptable to God. When the Lord says abstain from sexual immorality, just obey it. Obey that command. And it will save you a lot of heartache. Unfathomable pain. One, the, re- the reproof of disobedience. Two, the rejection of Saul. Look at verse, 1 Samuel 15 now. First Samuel 15, 1 through 3 Samuel also said to Saul, the Lord sent me to anoint you king over his people, over Israel. Now, therefore, heed the voice of the words of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I will punish Amalek for what he did to Israel, how he ambushed him on the way when he came up from Egypt. Now go and attack Amalek and Utterly destroy all that they have, and do not spare them, but kill both man and woman, infant and nursing child, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. What was Saul told to do? To utterly destroy, to attack. Some versions say strike. Devote to destruction all they have. Utterly destroy all he has. How clear is that? Pretty clear, right? Now look at verse 8 and 9. He also took Agag, that's Saul, king of the Amalekites, alive and utterly destroyed all the people with the edge of the sword. But Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep, the oxen, the fatlings, the lambs, and all that was good. And they unwilling, unwilling and were unwilling to utterly destroy them. But everything despised and worthless, they utterly destroyed. <laughs> I don't, I don't see why he captured King Agag. He said he took him alive. Didn't God say utterly destroy? Didn't God say attack and strike? I, I read strike Agag. Put to death. Don't spare them. Kill them. And what part of utterly destroy did Saul not understand? He disobeyed. He totally disobeyed and rejected what God told him to do. So verse 10 it says, now the word of the Lord came to Samuel saying, I greatly regret that I have set up Saul as king. For he has turned back from following me and has not performed my commandments. God says, it's so bad, I regret I made him king. And in verse 19, Samuel goes and talks to him and says, why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord? Why did you swoop down on the spoil and do evil in the sight of God? He wants to know, why didn't you obey? And verse 20, look look what Saul says. But I have obeyed the voice of the Lord and gone on the mission which the Lord sent me and brought back Agag, king of Amalek. I have utterly destroyed the Amalekites. But the people took of the plunder, sheep and oxen, the best of the things which should have been utterly destroyed to sacrifice to the Lord your God. He's shifting the blame. Saul says, but the people did this. Kind of reminds me of Adam and Eve when they were in the garden of Eden. (laughs) And God asks Adam, did you eat of the tree or the fruit of the uh, tree of the knowledge of good and evil? And what did Adam say? He says, the woman you gave me, the woman, he shifted the blame. And today that is still going on. We want to shift the blame to somebody else. And then I love what Samuel says in response. Look what he says in verse 22. So Samuel said, Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offering and sacrifices, as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to heed than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft. And stubbornness is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you from being king. Obedience is not an option, brothers and sisters. Because of Saul's blatant disobedience, God transfers the kingship from Saul to David. Basically, God annuls Saul's kingship because Saul didn't have a heart after God. To obey. So Saul is rejected as king. And what does he say in verse 24? He says, I have sinned. I have sinned. What does that mean? I have sinned. It means to break the law of God. It's to act independently of God. And in the Greek, harmartia, it means to miss the mark. I have sinned. And Romans 3.23 says, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So Saul placed his desires and his will above God's will. And what's the lesson here? The lesson here is how you finish is more important than how you start. And this is particularly important important for church leadership, for elders and pastors. How you finish is more important than how you start. Think about it. Who goes to college and graduates and says, okay, I'm ready to fail now. After four years of studying and graduating and everything, you graduate and you, you get your degree and you say, oh, okay, I'm ready to mess up now. I'm going to go. I'm just not going to do nothing with this. No. What about marriage? Okay. Uh, I'm, I'm getting married today. I'm going to go. And everybody, enjoy, enjoy the party because this marriage isn't going to last more than two years. So we're going to fail. Okay? Yeah. C- come, have a great time. No! No! How you finish is more important than how you start. A good beginning does nothing to guarantee a good ending. Wow. Happy endings are the result of good decisions and consistent discipline over a month, over a year. Over a lifetime. Listen to what I just said. Happy endings are the result of good decisions. And consistent discipline over a lifetime. Salvation happens in a moment. But sanctification takes a lifetime. And thank God that he is patient with us. The reproof of disobedience. The rejection of Saul. And thirdly, the response of obedience. Turn to First Samuel 16, 1. Now the Lord said to Samuel... How long will you mourn for Saul, seeing I've rejected him from reigning over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go. I am sending you to Jesse the Bethlehemite, for I have provided myself a king among his sons. And Samuel said, How can I go? If Saul hears it, he will kill me. But the Lord said, Take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Then invite Jesse to the sacrifice, and I will show you what you shall do. You shall anoint for me the one I named to you. So Samuel did what the Lord said and went to Bethlehem. And the elders of the town trembled at his coming and said, Do you come peaceably? God sent Samuel to the house of Jesse to anoint a new king, to, to take this new king. And at first Samuel says, Let me get this straight you got to be kidding. You want me to go and anoint another king while Saul is still on the throne? He's crazy. He's going to kill me. It's kind of like preaching. <laughs> I can't preach that. They're, they're going to get mad. They're going to get angry at me. But I do it anyway. If Saul finds out, he will kill me. And God says, take a heifer, and I will show you what you shall do. So Samuel went to Bethlehem. That is obedience. That is the response of the prophet Samuel, and that should be the response of every person who calls himself a believer, a follower of Christ. To obey is better than sacrifice, and to listen than the fat of rams. Noah was obedient when God called him to build the ark. Abraham was obedient when God called him to sacrifice his only son. Ruth was obedient when Naomi told her to go lie at the feet of Boaz. Moses was obedient when God called him to deliver Israel from Pharaoh. Daniel was obedient when he prayed before God and not a false idol. Obedience is not optional. Obedience is not negotiable. To obey Is better. To obey. Is better. Than sacrifice. Samuel responded. With obedience. And as I prepared this sermon. One of the things you do. Is what are the themes. In this book. And one of the themes of 1st and 2nd Samuel. Is that there are effects. Of disobedience and sin. Eli's sons were judged. God took them out. Saul's disobedience resulted in God's judgment and God's rejection. And although David was forgiven for his sin of adultery and murder, he still suffered devastating consequences. Oh man, the sword never departed from his house. Those are serious consequences. My first point is God's rejection of Saul. Now the second point. God's revelation of external versus internal. Look at verse 4. And so Samuel did what the Lord said and went to Bethlehem and the elders of the town trembled at his coming. He said, do you come peaceably? And he said, peaceably. I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Sanctify yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. Then he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. So it was when they came that he looked at Eliab and said, surely the Lord's anointed is before him. Samuel goes to Bethlehem to anoint the next king. And when Samuel sees Eliab, the firstborn, he says to himself, he's the one. Hey, this is the new king. Why? Because he was tall. Because he was a warrior. He fought with with Saul. And Samuel was enamored with the external, like most of us are. Man looks at the outside, but God God looks at the heart. Look at verse 7. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look at his appearance or his physical stature, because I have refused him. For the Lord does not see as man sees. For man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. So Jesse called Abinadab and made him pass before Samuel. And he said, Neither has the Lord chosen this one. Then Jesse made Shammah pass by and he said, neither has the Lord chosen this one. Then Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel and Samuel said to Jesse, the Lord has not chosen these. <laughs> God says, don't look at his height. Don't look at his appearance. And so Jesse parades all seven of his sons. The first one, exhibit A, exhibit B, exhibit C. God says, no, no, no. Exhibit D, E, F and G. No, 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 no. He says, and then in verse 11, are these all your sons? And Jesse made a crucial mistake right here. He says, are these all your sons? And in verse 11, he's, he says, well, there remains yet the youngest. And there he is keeping the sheep. And Samuel said to Jesse, send and bring him, for we will not sit down till he comes here. He goes, well, there is the youngest, but he's outside taking care of the sheep. Not only Samuel looked at the outside, but even Jesse's father, even David's father, Jesse, looked at the outside. And he even made a more serious mistake. The lesson here is that Jesse did not have an equal appreciation for his sons. All of them. He showed partiality. And that's a dangerous thing to do. When you have children. Do not show partiality. But that's another message. Okay. God. Second point. Looks at the heart. Look at verse 12. For he sent and brought him in. Now he was ruddy With bright eyes and good looking. And the Lord said arise anoint him. For this is the one. Arise and anoint him. This is it. This is the one. And God is teaching His people a lesson. He said God is teaching them that man looks on the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart. Man looks at a person's age, their credentials, how many degrees they have. God looks at their heart. David wasn't chosen because he was the firstborn or because of his social status, because he could kill a lion and a bear or because of his age. God chose David because of his heart. And let me tell you something, God knows your innermost being, your heart and your soul. Acts 15.8 eight says, and God who knows the heart. God knows the heart. Not only God knows our heart, but Jesus knows our heart. In Matthew 23 it says, woe to you scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which indeed appear beautiful outwardly, but inside are full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness. Even so, you also outwardly appear righteous to men, but inside you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Wow. Does Christ know our hearts? And then in Jeremiah seventeen nine, the heart is deceitful and desperately wicked. Above all, who can know it? I, the Lord, search the heart. The Lord knows our heart. And God chose a young shepherd, a teenager, to be the next king. God does that because He looks at the heart. In 1 Corinthians 28-29, the New Berkeley Version says, God has also chosen the world's insignificant and despised people and nobodies in order to bring to nothing those who amount to something so that nobody may boast in the presence of God. The success of the church is the nobodies. The success of the church is the insignificant people who gather together together. To serve one another, to worship God with humility. That's the success of the church. Paul says, look around, Corinthians. You won't find any impressive people here. Why? So that no one can boast before God. In the world, we choose the brilliant. We choose the the beautiful. We choose the successful people. If there was an interview, they're going to try and find the, the smartest person with all the degrees. And we are enamored with the surface. But God tells us, that's not the way I choose. God chooses the nobodies and turns them into somebody. Amen. And that, in a nutshell, is the story of David. A nobody who was turned into somebody. Notice 1 Samuel 16.1. I have provided for myself a king. See the contrast? Saul was the people's choice. David was God's choice. Hmm. God delights to take despised people, nobodies like David, and use them as his trophies of grace to bring down the powerful and to raise up the weak. Man looks at the outward appearance. God looks at the heart. And as God looks at your heart and God looks at my heart, what does he see? The third Sub-point is that David is anointed by Samuel. 1 Samuel 16, 13. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the Spirit of the Lord came upon David from that day forward. So Samuel arose and went to Ramah. Samuel anointed young David, and the Spirit of the Lord came upon him. Now, this was not David's coronation, okay? That's not going to happen for many, many years. David will go through one crisis out of another, hiding in the caves, running from Saul, almost being killed. And he will wonder for many years if the anointing by Samuel shall ever come to pass. Remember, David is a young teenager, about 17 years old, who's going to be on the run for about 10 to 13 years. He was chosen by God, and he was to become king, and he was anointed. Now, what does anointing mean? Anointing signifies separation to the Lord for a particular task with divine equipping for the task. So, anointing is basically setting apart for service to the Lord. In uh, Exodus 29, Aaron was anointed priest. In 1 Samuel 10, Saul was anointed king. And in 1 Samuel 16 13, David was anointed king. You say, How does that apply to us? Good question. We as believers have been called and chosen by God. Ephesians 1, four, Even as He chose us in Him before the foundations of the world that we should be holy and blameless before Him. Even as He chose us. We are called, brothers and sisters, chosen and anointed, set apart. God chooses nobodies for His service. Think about it. Ken, who did the angels appear, or who did the angels appear to at Jesus' birth? Shepherds. He said that last week. Lowly shepherds. Who was the mother of Jesus, Shelley? Mary. It's okay, you're writing. That's okay. A teenager named Mary. Who were some of the disciples? Fishermen. A tax collector. The disciples were Galileans. Low-class, rural peons. Uneducated people, commoners, nobodies. You know what? God's favorite instrument is nobodies. That's what's great. Because God looks at the heart. I think that's what we have to realize. We are nobody without Christ. Nothing without Christ. God's favorite instruments are nobodies. So first point, God's rejection of Saul. Second point, God's revelation of external versus internal. And thirdly, the last point, God's requirement to be a man after God's own heart. There's just three points here. And Second Chronicles 16.9 says, 2 Chronicles 16.9, if you don't have it, just Listen. Do I have a second? Okay. For the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth to show himself strong on behalf of those whose heart is loyal to him. Whose heart is loyal to him. The first requirement is to have a, a life of wholehearted devotion. The New American Standard said, whose heart is completely his. The New International Version, whose heart are fully committed to Him. The New King James, whose heart is loyal to Him. And the New English Translation, whose heart is devoted to Him. What is God looking for? He's looking for men and women whose hearts are completely His. Committed, devoted, loyal, wholehearted. What does that mean? That means there are no locked closets in your life. No secrets. That means when you sin, you Admit it. You feel bad over it, you confess it, and you repent. When God says, stop it, you stop it. What does it mean to be a person after God's own heart? What exactly does that mean? To be a person after God's own heart. That means you care about the things God cares about. What is important to God is important to you. What burdens God burdens you. You want what God wants. That's what it means to be a person after God's own heart. And when you have a heart for God, you have a heart that is sensitive to the things of God. You are a person whose life is in harmony with God. Acts 13, says, A heart that is near to God's heart will obey God. He raised up David to be their king, of whom he testified and said, I have found in David the son of Jesse, a man after my own heart, who will do all my will. That is obedience. That is wholehearted devotion. That is commitment. So the first requirement, a life of wholehearted devotion. Oh, I did put 1 Chronicles there. Second, it should be 2 Chronicles. The second requirement is a life of walking with God. Turn to 1 Samuel sixteen eighteen. Then one of the servants answered and said, Look, I have seen a son of Jesse the Bethlehemite who is skillful in playing, a mighty man of valor, a man of war, prudent in speech, and a handsome person, and the Lord is with him. 1737. 1737. Moreover, David said, The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear, he will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. And Saul said to David, Go, and the Lord be with you. Eighteen twelve. Now Saul was afraid of David because the Lord was with him, but he had departed from Saul. Verse 14. And David behaved wisely in all his ways, and the Lord was with him. The second requirement is a life of walking with God. And the Lord you see here is with David. This reminds me of Joseph when he was sold to Potiphar. And three times in Genesis 3, 39, it says, and the Lord was with Joseph. The Lord was with Joseph. The Lord was with Joseph. Three times. In Genesis 5.22, Enoch walked with God. Oh, that could only be said of me. Examine the lives of the righteous men in the Bible and you will find one common theme. They all walked with God in sweet communion and commitment. Like Enoch, they walked with God in private devotion and intimate fellowship. Like Abraham, they walked with God even when God called them to do seemingly impossible promises. And like Noah, they walked with God even when the culture all around them was totally corrupt. Leviticus 26 says, If you walk in my statutes and keep my commandments so as to carry them out, I will walk among you and be your God, and you will be my people. Verses 3 and 12. What does it mean to walk with God? It means intimate fellowship. Why is this important? So what? So what? We're supposed to walk with God. So what? Because we are created to walk with God. That's why. That's what. But first you must believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. First, you must believe that he died on the cross for your wicked sins and receive his forgiveness. John one twenty nine, he is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. You are a sinner and you need a Savior. And you are not walking with God until you first believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Salvation can happen in a minute, but sanctification is a lifelong process. And walking with God is a life of spending time with God. Jesus did it in Mark 14, verse 13, and in uh, Matthew 14, 13, and in Mark 135. You have to get alone with God. You make it a priority to spend time in the Word and time in prayer. The only way you're going to grow, and I'm going to say it one more time, the only way you are going to grow as a Christian is when you learn to walk with God, experience His love, and seek Him first. Can I hear an amen? amen? I wrote something here. It says, Believers must not walk according to the flesh, Romans 8, 4, or their former way of life, Ephesians 4, 17, but walk in the Spirit, Galatians 5, 16, in newness of life, Romans 6, 4, in love, Ephesians 5, 2, in good works, Ephesians 2, 10, in truth, second John 4 and in a manner worthy of the Lord Colossians 1:10 The first requirement of being a man after God's own heart is having a life of wholehearted devotion. The second requirement is a life of walking with God. And the third requirement, and my last point, is the life of humility. And this one is the hardest. And this is the one I struggle with the most. God saw humility in David that he didn't see in the seven brothers. And when Samuel whispered in David's ear, you will be the next king, and anointed him, what did David do? Did he run off to Macy's and buy a new crown, try him on? (laughs) I need a size seven and three quarters. (laughs) No. Did he go to Kinko's and order some business cards? I'm the king elect. I'm the king elect. Pretty soon, hold on, I'm coming. No. Did he go and buy a a new chariot and parade around town, saying, hey, I'm here, I'm the new king? didn't do any of that. No. You know what he did? Look at chapter 16, verse 19. 16, verse 19. Therefore, Saul sent messengers to Jesse and said, Send me your son David, who is with the sheep. He is with the sheep. He went right back to the sheep, even after being anointed king. Look at 1 Samuel 17, verse 14 and 15. David was the youngest, and the three oldest followed Saul. But David occasionally went and returned from Saul to feed his father's sheep at Bethlehem. Feed his father's sheep. David's the king's musician. What is he doing tending the sheep? That is the heart of humility. That was his job, and he was faithful to do it. It made no difference that he had been anointed king. As soon as that big moment was over, he went right back to taking care of the sheep. As soon as that was over, he humbly went back to the sheep. David had a servant's heart. And when you have a servant's heart, you are humble. You do what you are told. You respect those in charge. You minister to people. And you serve faithfully and quietly. Whether it's teaching, whether it's preaching, whether it's coming up and doing the music, music ministry, whether it's nursery, whether it's ushering, whether it's serving the food and cooking, whether it's cleaning, you do it faithfully and quietly. And Jesus gave us that example. In Philippians 2, 6, Who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing. Taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. That phrase that says made himself nothing literally means He emptied himself. Kenosis. He emptied himself. Not that he removed his divinity, but he laid it aside to become a servant. That is what humility does. Humility goes lower. Here is the Son of God. And he became a servant. That's going lower. Jesus left the glories of heaven. As Ken pointed out, to be born in a manger last week. That's going lower. That's what humility does. Humility doesn't oh, it's all about my rights, it's all about me. It's about going lower. That's humility. That's what Jesus did. That was the example. That's what it means. He made himself nothing. He who is everything, he who's sovereign made himself nothing. Humility goes lower. And I wrote down, uh, when serving is combined with humility, the serving becomes a pleasure. It's not a burden. You don't do it begrudgingly or reluctantly. It's a pleasure. And many of our sins, such as quarreling, anger, jealousy, strife, unforgiveness, becomes, is, happens because of our lack of humility. Our lack of humility. Have you ever gotten in an argument with somebody and they have to get the last word? A lack of humility. I'm trying to learn not to get the last word in. I'm being honest. God took a nobody. Who was keeping his father's sheep. On a Judean hillside in Bethlehem. And turned a nobody. Into a somebody. Brothers and sisters. God is looking for. Men and women who are fully committed, obedient with servants' hearts. And you know what? The reason I picked one of this message today is because David's life offers hope to all of us that God can do extraordinary things through ordinary, common people, young and old. Young and old. And if you're old, you even have more time. I believe God wants every one of his children to become a person after God's own heart. God is still looking for people who are committed, who are walking with him, and are humble. And I pray that you would renew your heart and your commitment to God today. Shortly before his death, at the age of 82, John Newton, who is the writer of Amazing Grace... Proclaimed, my memory is nearly gone, but two things I remember. Two things I remember. I am a great sinner and that Christ is a great Savior. That is a man after God's own heart. God looked at John Newton's heart. God looked at David's heart. And friend, brother, God is looking at your heart. Let us pray. With every head bowed, I pray, Lord, today, you take the nobodies in this body, Grace Bible Church, the despised and the weak, and raise us up into men and women who have a heart after God. I pray, God, that we could cry out like David. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any wicked way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. If you're not a Christian, cry out to God. He wants to save the lost that are called. Come to him in faith. And you can have hope and forgiveness. In Jesus' name, and all the people said, Amen. Amen.